And we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 10. So if you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to Hebrews. We've been in Acts for the past couple of weeks, uh, trying to look at what the first church looked like. And so now we are going to jump over to Hebrews 10. And I will tell you this, we're going to look at today has so much in it. I don't know if we can accomplish it in 35 minutes or whatever we're going to have here. Uh, so we'll do our best and we'll dig in and we'll, we'll see the things we have. But I hope that God's spirit directs us and challenges us with some of these truths today. Now, when I was growing up, um, we had superheroes just like there. So everybody's got superheroes today. There's all kinds of, you know, Marvel comics, whatever, and movies. And we like them like anybody else. But back in my day, when I was a little kid, we didn't have the incredible CGI Hulk, you know, computer generated. We had the incredible Hulk, Lou Ferrigno, painted green. Right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Now, I just recently, we switched cable providers every time, you know, our contract's up because they only give you a deal if you're switching. So, you know, I'm on a first name basis with the installers. Like, yeah, hey, good to see you again. Um, But when we switched, we got some channels that we didn't have before. And one of them included the Incredible Hulk, you know, Lou Ferrigno, Bill Bixby, old school Incredible Hulk, right? And and it brings back flashbacks to my childhood. I can remember sitting in uh, our living room watching this on the TV. It was those TVs that you had to get up and like turn by a knob. And if it, didn't, if it wasn't tuned in right or something, they, you, know, you could like move the antenna. You know, or like when we got really fancy, we had like this big round thing on top of the TV you could move the antenna with, right? And we were fancy, man. You know? And so it brings back all these memories. And I remember, I mean, Incredible Hulk was one of my favorite shows. I mean, it really was. I mean, what's better for a little, little boy than like, you know, you get the close-ups of the muscles ripping through the shirt and he throws the rag off. You know, it's just, it's awesome. It's amazing. But it always had the same thing. Like, for whatever reason, Bruce Banner, you know, he's trying to hide. Everybody thinks he's dead. And he's doing something. And all of a sudden, he's in a fight. Somebody's trying to beat him up. And he'll say to them, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry, right? And, but he's trying to not do anything. And they're punching him or something's happening. And then, it, you know, all of a sudden, he turns around and looks at the camera. And he's got green eyes. And you know it's on. It's coming, right? It's on. So he's got the green eyes, but they always found a way to like throw him behind a bush or into a, a truck or something so nobody could see what was happening because all of a sudden, here comes the Hulk and nobody, where did this big green creature come from? We have no idea. And he would tear through. And it's like, he didn't want to get like angry. He, didn't, he was always trying to control himself. He didn't want to turn into the Hulk, but he couldn't help it. They just made him mad, Right. And, I, and it registers with me how often we as humans use that as our norm, you know, in raising kids, you know, dad, you got to tell them to stop making me mad. Too many times I had the conversation, no one can make you mad. You, it's you choose your response. You're not, oh, I don't know what happened. All of a sudden I was just fine. And all of a sudden they made me mad. No, you chose to respond to the, the irritation and the annoyance by getting upset. It's funny because we watch a lot of uh, murder mysteries, you know, and a lot of the people who try to get away with or excuse their actions, whether it's legitimate or not, they'll talk about, you know, I was provoked to it. I, I, it was self-defense or something like that. And so it was something that I'm not responsible for because it was something that was coming my way. And so there's power in our human response to things that stir stuff up inside of us. You know, it, it just... We react to this stimuli by getting all riled up inside. And maybe it's helpful in, in places like a sports team where, you know, they're going to go out and play a game and they're all getting together and like, let's go get this. And they're all pumped up to go do it. 
Maybe it's not so helpful, you know, in a marriage where you're annoying one another and irritating one another and suddenly there's a giant blow up. But it's a very true reality and it's a very powerful thing that we have an effect on one another. As we get together, as we interact, as we relate to each other, we have an effect on each other. And that's just as true in the church as anywhere else. We try to leverage that having an effect, that stirring up effect in sports, in business, in social circles from time to time. But sometimes we think there's really nothing to it at church. And it depends on how you think about church. When you come to church, sometimes we think of it as, I come, I sit, I sing, I listen, and I go home. And that's church. But what we've been seeing in the Word of God again and again is that that's not church. It's one of the things we do together as church, but this is not church. Just, you know, I'm going to go to church and then I'm going to come home. You're the church. So when you go home, you're still the church, right? So how we respond to each other, how we react to each other, it, it has a lot about the relationship we have and the effect we're supposed to have on one another. And so we've been trying over the past month to talk about how church changes your life, how your spiritual family has an impact on you. And God designed it to be central to your experience as a believer. In other words, in the New Testament, there is no such thing as a Christian who is not deeply connected to their spiritual family, to the church. Today, it has become much more common to say, well, I'm a Christian, but I just don't go to church. Or I'm a Christian, but I'm not serving involved anywhere. I'm not doing anything about it. I'm just a Christian. And I think, you know, if you talk to some of these first century Christians, they'd be like, well, then you're not a Christian. Not that we can judge. I'm just saying they wouldn't know what to do with that. Because if you're a Christian, you're a part of the family. You're plugged in. You're involved. You're connected. You're living and breathing this relationship with Christ with your church family. And I told you, I'm trying to do everything I can to convince you to make church an absolutely written in stone priority in your life. Coming out and getting together intentionally with your church family is a huge part of a relationship with these people. I'm also doing my very best to convince you to take a second step and get connected in a small group to a portion of your church where you can really go deep, pray for one another, love one another. And so I'm doing that by saying, let's look at God's purposes in church and let me ask you, how are you going to accomplish them? You're the church. How are you going to get these things done? How are you going to act in your life and what decisions are you going to make in your life so that this stuff happens? And I think as we look at this today, what you're going to notice is that without God's designed connection with your church family, there are going to be huge holes in your life. Huge holes. Holes you probably can't live with. And so we're going to read this book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is one of those whodunits in the Bible. We don't exactly know who wrote it. There's lots of theories. You know, Paul wrote it. Apollos wrote it. Somebody we don't know wrote it. And James, the brother of Jesus, wrote it. And there's all these theories out there about who wrote this. Uh, seems pretty likely that it was someone who was very familiar with Judaism and the Old Testament law and the Old Testament symbols because it's a book filled with that. Uh, and it's written to the Hebrews, which is the Jewish believers. Hebrews, Jewish believers. And so there's a bunch of people out there who were God's people, a part of Israel, and then they came to Christ, and they had this, you know, God gave us the law of Moses, and now we believe in Jesus. What do we do with that? How do we fit those two together? You know, we got these Old Testament sacrifices and this Old Testament way of worshiping, and, and so the writer of Hebrews takes all that Old Testament stuff or a lot of that Old Testament stuff and connects it to Jesus. 
Now, in this passage, he's building off of all of that, and he's talking about how all of our connection with one another is supposed to have an impact on your brothers and sisters in Christ, and they are supposed to have an impact on you. As we read these, there's four, and I have today four points, four let us, like, let's do this. Four let us commands here. Let us do this, let us do this, let us do this, let us do this. All of them imply the community that you now sit in. In other words, this is something that doesn't happen the way God wants it to happen on your own. This stuff doesn't happen while you're having your devotions. This stuff doesn't happen while you're playing your worship CD on your way to work. And that's good stuff, and you should do that. But this stuff happens in the family of God, in the body of Christ. Let us. And so these are things that God's call for us to be together produces. Let us do these things. And so these are pretty incredible things. I'm going to start by uh, reading verse 19 down to verse 22, and we'll see the first one of these four, let us. All right, so start with me at verse 19. Here's what it says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us. Brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. Even that word says something about connection, doesn't it? It talks about family. And he's not talking about literal genetic brothers and sisters he's talking about the family of god we are brothers and sisters to one another and he says brothers and sisters i'm going to talk about kind of some of the you know what i'd like you to do but the first let us the first invitation the first effect that we are supposed to have on one another is that we are supposed to draw near to god now does that blow you away not yet okay Hang with me. Hang with me. Have you ever felt far from God? Do you know how that feels when God feels far away? Maybe you didn't call it that. Maybe you would call it something else. You would call it like, you know, you got this feeling inside that that something's wrong, something's unplugged, something's missing. You can't seem to find your way. You live in a cloud. Everything seems confusing. Everything seems hard. You don't have any hope. There's no You could put all kinds of things to describe it, but really what it is is you haven't found closeness to God. Other people talk about, you know, really being isolated and alone or fighting depression or fighting despair. And the invitation here is for us to draw near to God. Believers are invited to come into the presence of God Almighty and to feel His presence presence think about that think about what it would be like right this second if god almighty appeared in this room and invited you to come give him a hug now i would say you're like oh he's my dad and i would give him a hug but i'm just saying this god almighty is going to blow you away when you get to see him I think our pictures that we draw, you know, great grandpa, whatever, not really what we're going to find, okay? And I think if we 
take it for granted we missed the point. Let's back up for a second because what he says is, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. In the Old Testament, they had a sacrificial system. As a matter of fact, this whole book has been built on that idea of the sacrificial system and what they meant and what they pointed to. So he's talking to these Jewish people who know about all of that worship stuff. And so at the first half of this chapter, he talks about how Christ dying on the cross meant the end of those sacrifices. There's no more need. We don't come. You don't bring a sheep and you don't bring a bird with you when you come on Sunday morning. Aren't you glad? The place would smell really nice if we had to bring birds and sheep and animals and stuff. But we don't have to do that anymore. And you know why we don't have to do that anymore? Because Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was the last one. It was the one that all of those pointed to. And that meant that what they experienced in the Old Testament as worship was done away with. It's an interesting point. They think, well, what we do when we go to worship is we take an animal with us and they sacrifice the animal. That's our worship. So since we don't need to do that anymore, you would maybe come come to the conclusion that regular corporate, regular worship, you don't need to do that. It's unnecessary because we don't have to do the sacrifice thing. I mean, I think they sang together and they learned together, but the, the big point was this sacrifice stuff. And so someone who's reading this book along to this point might have said, well, so we don't have to do this worship thing anymore. Jesus finished it and now we're done. We don't have to gather together like we did in the Old Testament. But that is absolutely not the point of this passage. Because off of that, he builds this and he says, we should meet more regularly than you used to. You used to meet at feasts. You used to gather on the Sabbath. We should be together more regularly than that. And this is the description of what we do when we do this together. So what he's implying is we should be experiencing these things. We should be more equipped to do these things when we are joined with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm asking you today, are we? Are we experiencing this? And are we more equipped to do these things like this. Why is it that we need each other to accomplish the things that he's going to tell us about that he wants us to experience? Well, it's because the basis for all of them is faith. We are not witnesses like they were to the sacrifice. They, they would bring their sacrifice. They would watch it be sacrificed. They knew that they had sacrificed. We don't see the sacrifice anymore. It was done long ago. So we are reminded by faith about what our sacrifice is. And we are reminded by the presence of one another. And by the work that God is doing in one another. But here's the really cool part. In the temple and in the tabernacle, they were never invited to draw near to God. There were walls around the tabernacle. Don't come in here. There were walls around the holy place and the holy of holy places. There were rules about how you had to go in. There were things you had to do in order just to not die when you went in. Now, I don't know the last time you came to church and you were worried that God would strike you. There are some people. But this was their normal experience. If I don't do this stuff right, if I am not right before God, when I step into his house, he might kill me. So much so, the tradition says, when the high priest went into uh, the Holy of Holy Place on the Day of Atonement, they would tie a rope around his foot in case he died in there. And they weren't allowed to go in. So they would have to drag him out under the curtain. And when we talk about draw near to God, 
I don't know if you understand how precious of an invitation that is. You and I are invited into the presence of Almighty God without reservation, without walls, without any fear. We can go, he says, with confidence into the most holy place. Draw near to God. Because why? Because our hearts have been cleansed. We have been forgiven. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross, when you receive it by faith, it washes your sin away and your heart is cleansed. You are forgiven. The sin that was there before is no longer there. And in this, the the readers of Hebrews would see it as the sacrifice for sin on the altar on the Day of Atonement, the blood sacrifice washing away your sin, covering your sin. That's what they would see it as. Then he says, our bodies washed with pure water. When they went into the tabernacle, when they went into the temple, the first thing they did is they would come up to the bronze laver and they would wash ceremonially with water, symbolizing the dirt of life and the mistakes and and everything that's not pure needs to get off of me. Today, the symbol of that is the, the, the baptism that we have, right? And the symbol of baptism represents the fact that we are placed into Christ. We are baptized into the Spirit, that we have received Almighty God, we don't go to meet with God. If you're a Christian, you don't go to meet with God somewhere. He comes near to you. In fact, He comes inside of you. The Spirit of God lives in you. You don't have to chase Him down. You don't have to get His attention. He's right here. So when I say, what if God showed up? He already did. You just don't see Him. And you, because you don't see him, and because you're not in fear for your life like you deserve to be and I deserve to be, we take it for granted. We make it a light thing. It's no big deal. Draw near to God. But what he says is, you can come close. You can experience the presence of the creator of the universe. You can come close. Are you drawing near to God when you come, when you come together as a family? Do we prompt one another is the effect of our together that people know they are invited and encouraged to draw near to God. And as you get together with your church family, do you draw near to God? Do you feel the invitation and are you refreshed in your relationship with Him? That's why we do worship on Sunday morning. If you're one of the people who like has an ear for, well, I don't like that song and I don't, I, you know, it's a little bit too loud, a little bit quiet today. I don't like that singer. They're off to whatever. If you're like that, you missed the whole point. Because the point cannot be about who's up here. The point is not about me. The point is not about any of... The point's about Him. Right? Draw near to God. Now, God chooses to use us to promote that, to prompt that, to stir that up in us, that we would draw near to God. How in the world would God use me so that other people could be drawn near to God? I don't know. But God uses anyone. He uses anything. Isn't that amazing? That this unbelievable privilege that we could have never earned to come close to God, we don't deserve it and we would never belong there, but because he came to us and he invites us in, he also uses us so that one another can draw near to God. And there's this other powerful truth, and I don't want you to miss it before I go to the next, because we got four of these and we're only going to get through one, but okay. I love this truth, and I think this is really a, a big deal because maybe not, it's not your life today, but maybe it's someone in your life. Maybe it is your life today, or maybe it will be your life somewhere along the way. He says this. We draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance, the full assurance that faith brings. Now, I know many people who struggle 
with knowing for sure that they're believers. We call that assurance. That they stand firm in their faith and they know where they stand with God. And they like, how can I know if I'm really a Christian? I don't know if I really am. I'm not sure if I am or not. I don't know, maybe I didn't believe right. Maybe I didn't say the right things. I just feel like God couldn't possibly have invited me into his family. And the reality is we have plenty of evidence for our unworthiness. And the accuser loves to beat us over the head with it. But here what we're told is that we can come close to God with assurance that we are his, that we are his children, that we belong. How do we get that assurance? How do we get the I know it for sure that I'm a Christian? Don't miss this. Church, your brothers and sisters, being around them, being connected to them, and being with them brings and grows and establishes assurance in your soul that you are his. It is something you can't do on your own. And I have watched this again and again, heartbreakingly so as a pastor. People who struggle with the assurance of their salvation wind up disconnecting from church and it never helps, it always hurts. And other people who struggle with it are in church but they never connect to anyone and they go, I don't know why I don't know if I'm saved or not but it's because you aren't embracing the thing God gave you that would build assurance in your life. Does it make sense? So connection with your body, with with your church family is a huge part of what God wants to do to make sure that you know where you stand with him. And so as I am connected with my brothers and sister, I am more assured of Christ's sacrifice that Jesus died on the cross. We sang it together this morning, that he rose from the dead. I am more assured of my participation in it because I watch the power of God in your life and you speak the power of God into my life. I am more sure of my forgiveness. I am more sure of my new life. I am more sure of my hope. I am more sure of my future. I am more clear on the way that I am to live and to walk because I am assured by my spiritual family. And so draw near to God. Church, when it's done right, church, when it functions the way God designed it to, causes people to draw near to God, including me. That's what we're shooting for. Now, do you think that one hour a week's enough for that? Or one hour a month? See, what we do and where we spend our time really, really matters. Let's take a look at the other three. Verse 23, there's another one of these, let us. It says this. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Man, I hope you understand. He who promised is faithful. He is faithful. You can trust him. You can rest in him. You can know for sure that what he said he will do, he will do. So it says, let us hold unswervingly to hope. Now, in my life, and probably in many of yours, I have realized that hope is a hard thing to hold on to. Hope is tough in dark moments. On any given day, on any given week, you can find it really difficult to be filled up with hope. I mean, sometimes it feels like you're going to feel this hurt forever. Sometimes it feels like there's no way that this can all work out to some kind of good future. There's just no way. There's, I can't do it. There's no path from here to a good future. 
Sometimes it's hard to believe or hard to hope that I really matter, that I'm really important, that if I put my mess in God's hands, he can somehow turn it into something eternally amazing. Sometimes it just doesn't feel like that. There's just no way for me to get a grip on hope. And every day we walk out into this world and things that happen in our daily life pulls at our hope. It makes it easy for us to think no one appreciates us, that what I'm doing doesn't really matter. It won't make any difference. That other people will always get a better deal than I'm getting. Moments in life of pain, sorrow, breaking can be so overwhelming that it can truly feel like you will never get better and you're going to have to suffer for the rest of your life. You'll never find your way back to being whole again. Sometimes it's really hard to hold on to hope, isn't it? And then we get these false hopes offered to us. You, you need hope, and so these things rush in that, that kind of seem like an answer, and they kind of make things better even for a little bit. But here's the reality. They can't hold the weight of the expectation and the need of your life. And so you pour your hope into them, and you chase them, but they just fall apart again and again. And you're like, well, you can't fall apart. You're my hope. You're the reason that I believe life can be okay, and life can be enjoyable, and I can smile. I have to have you. People who lose hope in the family of God find some way to believe in, in other groups of people, people that don't help them draw near to God, and they, but they believe they can belong there. And so they find this false hope in people who aren't doing what real hope calls us to. People look for hope in their job, their career, in their kids. Oh, my kids will make me feel like I matter. In their money, in relationships, in marriage, in success. And they look for hope everywhere. But we hold unswervingly to hope where and how? In the family of God. Because we have real hope. Not hope that will fall through. Hope that no matter what it looks like today will always play out exactly as our God says it will. Because he who promised is faithful. So we hold unswervingly to hope together. Some days my grip is weak and you make my hand hold tighter. Someday your grip is weak and I make your hand hold tighter. Sometimes you lose your grip and I grab onto you. Sometimes you grab onto me. We hold unswervingly to hope together. It is one of the ministries we are called to. It means we are engaged well enough to know when life is hard and when someone needs help holding on. Unswervingly. And the word unswervingly there means unmovable. Uh, Actually, in the... uh, Original language, hold and unswervingly are two words, and both of them have this idea of being grounded and unshakable and unmovable. Both are connected to the concept of the picture of a ship anchored or tied at a dock against a current or a wind, that something would want to move that ship from where you have it, but you have a way of keeping it there. Okay? Very descriptive because life has a way of trying to move you from hope and move you into despair and move you into false answers for your life. But what it says here is your church family, your connection to your brothers and sisters will hold you still in hope. If we live hopeless, maybe our connection to our church is the issue. There is nothing stopping us from choosing to hold on to hope unswervingly together. But sometimes we excuse ourselves, well, I'm too busy, I don't have time. I can, you know, that's just not my personality. Connection to your church family is how God designed for us to hold unswervingly 
to hope. And so your ability to hold on to hope is directly tied to the strength and health of your connection to your brothers and sisters in your church family. Church, when it's done right, church, when it's healthy, helps people to hold on to hope. Even when all the currents and all the winds and all the pressure are trying to push you away from hope, church helps people believe and hold on. Third one, verse 24. Verse 24 says this, another let us. Uh, It says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. To spur one another on. Together doesn't just hold us still. Together pushes us on. It stirs us to action. It motivates us. It moves us. The word spur on, uh, in some translations, it is the word to provoke. It's a great word, to provoke. You ever been provoked? And and that's exactly what it means. It's this idea of a constant prodding until there's almost no choice but to respond. You, You have a picture in your head right now, don't you? Someone who has provoked you, and they just poked at you and poked at you and poked at you until you were like, what? What's wrong with you? I can't take it anymore. The word means to drive to exasperation. But here it's used to be provoked in a good way, to be stirred up, to be spurred on. How do we provoke one another to love and good deeds? Maybe it's that somebody's weak spots trample all over your comfort. You know? Like, what's convenient for you, where you feel safe, where you feel secure, where you feel clear. Somebody else has weaknesses and they trample all over that and you're like, get out of here, I don't want you here. Because we're connected. Some of the way that you are provoked to love and good works, it means that you have this stimuli coming at you to the place where you have to respond. And what he's saying is, in a church family, we are more and more stirred up to respond so that we will respond rightly to that instead of wrongly to that. So maybe that person who's annoying you that you wish you could just cut out, maybe that person that's hurting you so you wish you could just be done with them, maybe what God is saying is, I'm trying to stir you up with them. So that you'll start living in faith. You'll start living what you believe. You'll start living that like what this says is actually true. Maybe your spouse is your provoker. Maybe. Question is, what are you going to do about that? Because are you going to go closer to them or further from them? Are you going to be a teammate with them or an opponent of them? See, God uh, brings that stuff into our lives and we're like, could you just get this out of my life? I don't like it. It's inconvenient and it's bothering me. Could you just remove it? And God says, I'm not removing it. That's the only way you're going to grow. That's the only way you're going to learn. That's the only way you're going to decide how you're going to respond. Maybe the reason you still feel provoked is because you haven't decided to respond in a way that's growing and going forward yet. And so you've never resolved it. And God's not going to take it away until you resolve it the way, the reason he brought it into your life. People who sit on the sidelines in, in church a lot of times, we, we get up here and we talk about this need and that need and this event, and the Spirit is provoking you and you keep shutting it down and shutting it down. And you, He keeps trying to draw you in. Come on, respond, respond. And like, when do I just not have to pay attention anymore? I guess I just won't go to church anymore. But that's, that's the response that, to pro- provocation, but it's not the right response. 
Sometimes those things that irritate us are there so that we are get up and do something different. We do something right. We do something the way we're supposed to be. So we provoke one another. Another way we stir one another up is through the passion, through what moves us, what gets us, what excites us. So if I get up here on Sunday morning and I talked and I said, well, today we're going to look at Hebrews. We're going to read some things in Hebrews. You know, some of you are already nodding off right now. But I get up and I talk aloud. And there's something about when I'm excited about this, it has a different effect on as you're listening to it. When the worship team's up here and they're singing and playing, if, you know, they're playing along and they're like, you know, <sighs> you know. but if they're moved and they're excited, it has an effect. You have the same effect on one another in the pews. You just don't realize it. Y'all think you're invisible out there. I know because you're like, you know, nodding off and you don't think I see you. I see you. I have a list of names at the end of every service. But it's, it's an enticing idea to think that you're invisible because you sit on the floor. But you're not. You have an effect. And I'm not saying everybody's looking around, what's everybody doing? But there's an effect, and you know it in your soul, there's an effect on if the, a whole church is kind of dead, like, well, that's a nice song, whatever. Or if the whole church is pouring out praise, there's an effect. Because passion is contagious. Passion stirs people up. Passion is what moves us. And you have the opportunity to act in passion. And by that, provoke one another to press us forward, to stir our souls. You have that opportunity. Don't take that lightly, church. Because church, when it's done right, spurs us on. And it spurs us on to love and good deeds. Man, we come back again and again to this earmark of being a believer. Love. By this will all men know you're my disciples if you love one another. Love for one another. And good deeds is probably talking about the action of love. And so love by its very definition means you can't be isolated and alone. You have to be connected. You can't love in a vacuum. You have to love someone. So you have to be connected to them. And good deeds is how I live that out. I've been spurred on to do what is good, what is kind, what is sacrificial, what is caring for you. Connection. And so we are to stir one another up to love and good deeds. When church is done right, when church is healthy, we are continually stirred to deeper love and to more regular actions and deeper sacrifices in love for one another. Is that what we are? Because he says, let us consider how to do that. And that's not saying, pastor, figure it out and tell the people. It's saying, let us consider how to do that. Last one, probably the most obvious. It just says this, verse 25. And not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So this is another let us. It's just, it, it builds off of verse 24. Let us consider and not giving, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Pretty pointed, pretty obvious. Let us not give up meeting together. Now today we have all kinds of reasons why people give up meeting together. In this century and these people, these are Jewish believers. And Jewish believers had a lot of social pressure in their life to stop meeting with other believers. They were Gentiles, therefore their friends would think they were dirty. Hanging out in the house with them, eating with them would make you dirty. There was a lot of pressure around them. It could have financial consequences. It could have career consequences. It could have social consequences. It could cost you position and power and influence. 
And so a lot of these believers were weighing the cost of showing up at church versus the benefits of not showing up at church, and they decided to stop showing up. I'm asking you, do we do that? You weigh the cost of showing up at your, at your family gatherings on Sunday morning, or small group, the cost of it against the benefits of not doing it, and yep, the benefits sound better. What I hope we've done over the course of this month is looked into the Word of God at how much we miss if we weigh that out and what seems like a better deal to miss our church family, to disconnect from our church family, to not show up, to not prioritize our church family. And so he simply says, don't give up meeting together. Don't treat it like it's not important. Don't look at it like it's not valuable. Don't act like it's optional instead of vital. Act like it is what God made it to do. And when we stop meeting together, when we stop connecting on purpose, we lose what he says here. Encourage one another as you see the day approaching. The day is a reference to the end. Whether it's just your end or the end. Yesterday was supposed to be the end, wasn't it? I guess we got another end coming or whatever. But the end is coming. The Lord is coming back. I don't know that we need signs for us to live ready. We should live ready anyway. Because whether that sign was the sign or not, the answer is exactly the same. Live for Jesus now. So maybe it's the weakness of our flesh that's all wrapped up in what signs are because we should just be about the Father's business no matter what. As you see the day approaching. Do you see the day approaching? Have you noticed that you're getting older? Do you see the day approaching? Time is short. The day is approaching. And so what do we need? He says the church family does this. As we gather together, we encourage one another. As we gather, we find ways to encourage each other. It is God's design and the Spirit's teaching that we should look for ways to encourage. We talked about this last week. The power of encouragement. Encouragement is the needed refreshment in the discouraging process of growing. You ever been discouraged by your growth? Encouragement is a refreshing drink of water in the middle of being discouraged that growing goes slowly. And it is the fuel that we get as believers to live out of step with this world, with their values, with their viewpoints, with their directions, with their goals. We have to live out of step with that and encouragement, encouragement together as a body is the fuel to live that way. So that means if we're discouraged, maybe the problem is our connection to church. Maybe the church needs to take our calling more seriously in this area. To hold dear the power of encouragement as we see the day approaching. Lots of stuff in this passage, but let's just say this. What we say to one another matters. All of these things spurring one another on to love and good works and holding unswervingly to hope and drawing near to God and even showing up and encouraging each other, they all are connected to how we interact with each other in words. What you're saying to one another. I'm asking you today, has our church continued to have the effect of drawing you close to God? Are we having the effect together of drawing others near to God? How strong is your grip on hope? How strong is your brother's or sister's grip on hope? Are we holding unswervingly? Have you grown this year in love and good deeds because you're a part of the church family? Or if you look back over the year, maybe you don't see any clear evidences of your love for your church family growing, your ability to do good deeds for them growing. So we're just going to close with a song. It's actually just a video. 
Um, but it's a powerful video from Casting Crowns, and it talks about the power and the opportunity that we hold in each other's lives. And I hope that you will embrace that. Are we willing to be the kind of friends that love one another like this? Because what would God do in our church if we saw clearly how God does stuff in our together that doesn't happen anywhere else? And we stepped into it, and we said, let us do this together. I pray that we will. So let's watch this video, then we'll close in prayer.